Hey, true crime fans. Did you know 600,000 people go missing in the United States every single year? Now, I feel like that's an insanely high number, but it's actually down in recent years. That was 2020 statistic. However, the case today takes place almost 20 years ago in 2001. And this is the disappearance of Nikki McCown. In July of 2001, Nikki McCown was an ambitious 28-year-old studying criminal justice and working at a correctional facility as the head accountant. Nikki hoped to one day work for the FBI as an agent or as a federal marshal, and was also only weeks away from marrying the love of her life, Bobby Webster. She had dated Bobby when she was a freshman in high school, but being a few years older than she was, he moved from their hometown of Richmond, Indiana, out to California. I don't know about you if you're from a small town, but it always sounded to me growing up in a small town in the East Coast that going to California was like the biggest deal ever. Like You made it if you got out and went to the West Coast. Anyway, after Bobby left, Nikki ended up in a relationship where she became pregnant with a baby girl who she would name Peyton. Her relationship with Peyton's father didn't last, though, and in 1998, when Bobby moved back to Richmond, Indiana, he and Nikki got back together. Now, her relationship with her father's excuse me, with her daughter's father, he is on record um, on the investigation discovery episode of Disappeared. He says that he wishes he would have treated her better, not beaten her, have been a lot nicer to her. So I'm under the impression that there was abuse involved. And while things had been um, nicer toward the end, it definitely doesn't sound like they had a really great relationship, at least while they were together. So soon after Bobby got back to Richmond, he proposed to Nikki, and she, of course, said yes. I mean, come on, storybook romance. He moves away. She has a child. He comes back. He swoops in. They're in love, yada, yada, yada. Well, on July 22nd, 2001, Nikki and Bobby went about their normal Sunday afternoon, went to church together in the morning, and then went their separate ways to take care of some final things for the wedding. Wedding date was set for August 18th, 2001, just a few weeks away, like I said. And with the fest approaching, Bobby went to the mall with a cousin to do a final fitting for the tuxedos for the big day. In the meantime, Nikki was going to bring their laundry to the Richmond Coin Laundromat to tackle the laundry. Right around noon, she dropped her nine-year-old daughter Peyton off at her parents and headed to the laundromat. However, Nikki stopped back over to her parents' house while waiting for the laundry to finish drying and told her mom that a few Hispanic men at the laundromat were making her uncomfortable and harassing her while she was there. Now, Nikki's mom encouraged her to bring the clothes back there to finish up, but Nikki insisted she was sure that she'd be fine and had nothing to worry about. Maybe she was just being paranoid. Nikki didn't return home with Peyton that evening, and Bobby originally assumed she was still with her parents. Now, her mom is on record saying as well that it didn't surprise her that Nikki wanted to stick it out at the laundromat because that was just her personality and that's how she was like tenacious and tough and she really didn't take anything from anyone. But they also say that she was really kind of edgy and frustrated and seemed distracted while she was back complaining about these men anyway. So... When Bobby got, when it got to be about six o'clock at night, Bobby started calling around looking for her. And one of her sisters, now Nikki was one of nine siblings, one of her sisters expressed she had probably just been out shopping with the wedding coming up, and that seems like a feasible situation. 
I feel that Peyton spent a lot of time with her grandparents, and the fact that Nikki hadn't picked her up quite yet wasn't so out of the ordinary. On investigation, discoveries disappeared. Her mother expresses that it was completely reasonable that maybe Nikki had jumped in her car and gone over to Ohio because she worked over there. When it began to get dark outside, then they began to worry. The only thing missing from her apartment was the laundry she had taken with her. Her purse and ID were even still on the bedside table. And on a side note, how many people leave without their ID? I'm kind of asking out of curiosity if you want to like send me a DM and let me know if this is normal for you, because this blows my mind. I know I have friends who often go places without it, and maybe it's my own paranoia, but I would want it on me in case I were to be in an accident or I was found dead on the side of the road and maybe the killer left it in my back pocket. Totally paranoid, I know. But in all reality, don't leave without your ID. Take that shit with you, even if you're going around the corner to the gas station and back. You literally never know. Could you never know? Forget the ticket. That doesn't matter. It's You can't leave without that. Okay. So with the worry increasing, a few of them decide to drive to Dayton, Ohio, where Nikki works, and see if they spot her car on the side of the road. You know, maybe she'd broken down or was in an accident, something like that. And still, there's no sign of Nikki or of her vehicle. At this time, her father insists that they file a missing persons report. And of course, we all know the police won't do anything until she's been missing for longer and it's only been less than a day. They literally assumed that Nikki and Bobby must have been fighting or she had cold feet and left of her own volition. Maybe she'd be back in a little bit after she clears her head, whatever. Well, you have to wonder if the police even took them seriously. Would they have found her? Because her siblings began pounding pavement looking for her and questioning people on their own. They knocked on doors, passed out flyers, stopped people in the street. They wanted to know where she was. And when she didn't show up for work the next day, the police finally took it seriously which I still think is actually sooner than they would normally accept a report, but I don't really feel that they did a good job of just making this case a priority. So police had a helicopter search for her missing vehicle, and I've heard two different things here. I've heard that the helicopter only went over Richmond, Indiana, and then I've heard that it went over Dayton, Ohio as well. I'm not sure which one is accurate, but either way, they were unable to locate Nikki's vehicle. So who is always the first person of interest when someone goes missing? Of course, they begin looking at Bobby Webster, Nikki's fiance. And the thing with Bobby, though, is that he didn't make it look very good for himself. I mean, Bobby called the community college she was attending looking to collect her tuition money that wasn't being used and is said to have become very frustrated with the person on the phone when she told him that Nikki didn't have any unused tuition to collect because one, it doesn't work like that, and two, because her employer was paying the tuition for her. To make matters worse, he reportedly tried to take back the wedding rings she had purchased for him as well as asking for the deposit back for the reception hall. Bobby, she just went missing. How are you already canceling the wedding? And according to Bobby, on disappeared, he wasn't canceling the wedding, but it was the farthest thing from his mind. Anyway... He never told anyone that it would canceled, and he claims that he wanted the deposit back in order to buy a cell phone so that he could be reached at all times with all of the running around that they were doing with Nikki being gone. And I know I'm giving him a hard time, but I actually agree with him here. It seems that being accessible would be super important to me as well. And truly, I want to say that I do not believe Bobby was involved in her disappearance. No cliffhangers this time, guys. I agree that it doesn't look good for him, but I really don't believe he had anything to do with it. Why the suspicious behavior? 
I think he was freaking out. His fiance was gone and he was ready to put up any cash he could get a hold of to help find her. And he didn't have much of his own. So I would say it's kind of like when someone that you are really close with, they just keep popping into your mind that day. Um, your intuition is just saying like, I, it's putting you in touch with that person and you really want to connect with them. And I think that Bobby was essentially really picking up on the fact that something was really wrong and he knew his fiance really well. And he knew that she doesn't just disappear like this. So I think he was already trying to gather resources. It really makes complete sense to me, both logically when you speak it out loud and energetically when I feel into it. According to the police, he failed the polygraph. But according to Bobby, the question was whether he felt responsible for her disappearance, to which he says, of course he does, because he wasn't able to protect his woman. Little archaic, but I feel this is an accurate statement from him. The police are unable to call him a suspect, but only a person of interest. And I truly don't think that he knows anything about her disappearance. Three months after her disappearance, her car was found abandoned in the parking lot of Meadows of Catalpa Apartments in Dayton, Ohio. Her laundry was still folded in the basket in the backseat of her car. And that specific apartment complex, her ex-boyfriend, Peyton's father, I believe, lived there but he had an alibi that checked out and was ruled out fairly quickly. Another friend of Nikki's lived nearly a quarter of a mile away from that complex as well and could not be ruled out. Coworker Tommy Swint. I have seen reports that Nikki and Tommy had an affair together, but according to Nikki's family, that's just simply not true. And it seems that Tommy wanted more from Nikki than Nikki would give him as she was about to marry the love of her life. According to her sister, Tommy was more of a friend or a, quote, big brother type, but at the same time was someone she walked in on allegedly trying to rape Nikki at one point. Six years later, it somehow comes back to the McCown family and Richmond police that Swint has been hired as a police officer in Trotwood, Indiana, as he is a person of interest in an unsolved murder of Nikki McCown. Once the detectives in Richmond let Trotwood police know that Swint is a person of interest in the murder of Nikki, Trotwood asks him to resign or to be fired. Swint resigns and then tries to sue the Richmond Police Department, alleging that he was never informed that he was actually a person of interest in her death. He doesn't win these lawsuits. He looks like a total fool, and he does come back with a little bit of like local celebrity. So because of this newfound celebrity status, an anonymous tip comes in about an unsolved murder from 16 years prior. The victim is 33-year-old Tina Marie Ivory. She was strangled and her body was wrapped in a blanket and dumped in the woods. And at the time, they had been able to collect DNA but didn't have a suspect to put it to. Once this tip came in about Swint, the Dayton police were able to reopen the cold case of Tina Marie Ivory. Richmond police actually had Swint's DNA and had obtained it during the lawsuit earlier in the year. Pretty clever. His cocky ass allowed them to take his DNA as a show of good faith that, yeah, I'm being cooperative and y'all are the ones who are doing me wrong. Nope. The DNA matched the crime scene of the murder of Miss Ivory, and not only that, they were able to lift a palm print from the tape that wrapped the blanket around her body. Now they needed a fingerprint. They were able to obtain that through a traffic stop and even bring him in for an interview where he denied having anything to do with Miss Ivory's murder. Of course, though, the fingerprint matched the palm print and thus an arrest warrant was issued. You can see him in the interview saying at that point that he was done talking to them and wanted to see his lawyer. 
or that his lawyer wouldn't like him answering any more questions. And it's it's so funny how quickly his demeanor changed. He really thought he was so untouchable. So when police approached Tommy Swint's residence to arrest him, they heard a single gunshot and entered to find Tommy Swint laying dead on the floor with a gun in his hand. He shot himself to avoid going through trial and to prison for what he did to Tina Marie Ivory and her family. That is where Nikki's case seems to end. So how do I see it? What's interesting to me is that there's not a lot of information out there that lets us know what led the police to Tommy originally. I believe intuitively that it was it was a tip or information from one of her sisters, someone in her family, but they didn't have enough to really arrest him or to hold any charges to him. Although I do think that they really knew that it was him from the very beginning after their first point of contact with him. So I think that the men at the laundromat were not what was really bothering Nikki. I think they were irritating her, but in the back of her mind, she was bothered because she was going to confront Tommy and was nervous to do so because of how violently he had treated her in the past. I mean, he attempted to rape her, and I do believe that that is 100% true. He was stalking and harassing her, and what she said about the Hispanic men was true, but again, she didn't want to worry her parents and tell them what was really going to happen. Okay, Tommy actually sent lingerie to her bridal shower as a gift. It is so inappropriate. And they didn't have like that type of relationship. Okay. She wanted nothing to do with him in that way. So she wanted Tommy to leave her alone and she planned on letting him know that. I see her parking at the apartment complex to meet Tommy there. And it feels as if this is like a neutral location to talk to him where she'd feel safer because he had become violent with her before. I know there is controversy over whether or not they had the affair or a relationship of any sort. And the consensus seems to be that Tommy had a different view of their relationship than she did. But what I feel is that she was generally being polite with him at work. And friendly with Tommy, and he misinterpreted that as interest. When she shot him down, it really pissed him off. He was angry. So in the interest of full disclosure, and if you've been here since the beginning of Murder and Mediumship, you know that I believe in total transparency. I cannot connect with what Tommy must have said to get Nikki to meet him. I feel that he threatened her daughter in order to convince her to meet him. Nikki was smart, and she wouldn't have gone to meet him willingly unless she felt that she had to. I will tell you what I do see, and that's her standing outside of her car on the driver's side talking to him. I almost feel like she knew what was coming, but felt she couldn't speak up or stop it because of Peyton. And I get the sense of leave her out of this as if he threatened that if she didn't go along with him, that he would kill Peyton or possibly one of her sisters. I see her ducking into the passenger side, but it's more like he's forcing her in physically I feel that he's forcing her and like has his head on her his hand on her head and on her back like you would be putting um a suspect into a vehicle um and I also believe that he had a gun so I get the sense of a sexual assault and I don't want to go into details because of course you never know who could be listening but I do believe she was sexually assaulted and I see him strangling her during the assault what's weird is that I see he took her from that location of the apartment complex to another place, which feels like a home. Um, It looks white to me. It looks white to me and it looks like an older home. I want to say like maybe 1940s or 30s. Um, Anyway, 
I see that there's a tarp or something laid on a bed and on the floor. Like he was being careful that the cleanup would be as simple as possible because this wasn't his first time doing it. It was possibly the third, maybe even the fourth. And I do believe that in his time in the Marine Corps, he had assaulted but not necessarily killed local women when he was overseas. Regardless, I see him pulling her down from the bed onto the tarp on the floor, and it looks like it's on cold concrete or stone. Like it would be in like a basement, maybe a garage, but I really feel more like probably a basement. So he rolls the tarp around her and ties it off, and I see twine around her wrists and around the tarp that she's enclosed in. And truly, I think that he kept the tarp that was on the bed, but he took her in the tarp that was on the floor. And I don't believe he rolled her very tightly because as he drags her to the car, I think the tarp loosens up, and as he drags her from the car, a hand is exposed. So he drove her maybe three miles down the road to either a park or a wooded area. I don't often get numbers But I keep hearing three, three, like three max or just outside of three miles. And it doesn't look like a particularly large area where he dumped her. And I honestly can't believe that she wasn't found. I'm seeing one of those blue tarps with a silver underside. And I'm not sure if it's swampy or just muddy as if it had recently rained or there's like water drainage that comes up through there. But he he dumped her. In such an obvious place that I can't believe, I really am in disbelief that she wasn't located. And that being said, I really don't believe that the police truly dedicated the time and resources to finding her that they say that they did. It feels as if many things were glossed over and truly Tommy could have been apprehended much sooner than he was. They could have found her. I almost feel like he moved her body or something after they looked into him. Because, I mean, I can really see her, like, going back, dragging, see him going back, dragging her back into the trunk. And that's why she isn't there anymore and took her farther into, like, the hills or mountains of Ohio where it's more, like, wooded, where she wouldn't be found. And truly, I don't believe she will be. I even, I have, like, the sense of her near a road for a few days and then she's pulled back into a trunk. And she's driven, I can see him like going up like a winding road and she's left in the woods like half buried. But you wouldn't know to go up there looking for her. Um, Anyway, like I said in the beginning of this episode, over 600,000 people go missing in the United States every single year. If someone is making you feel uncomfortable or unsafe, do not be polite. And for the love of God, always tell someone where you're going, especially if the person you're meeting tells you not to. I do not think that poor Nikki McCown will be found. I think that she, I feel like wildlife probably got a hold of her and she's not exactly in one piece anymore. So if you know of anything that could be of interest or if you even think it it wouldn't be of interest, but it's a small detail about the disappearance of Nikki McCown, please report it to the Richmond, Indiana Police Department or the Indiana State Police. I will have phone numbers and links provided in the show notes as usual and on Patreon as well. Love and light, my friends. Love, light, and murder as always on Murder and Mediumship.